morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. It is summer. It is warm out there. And so, but we get to gather, we get to celebrate uh, the promises that Christ has kept for us. And so let's stand together, let's worship. Psalm 47 says this, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome. The great King over all the earth. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. And we're gonna do just that this morning as we sing together. And draw from the well that won't run dry to all who are thirsty. He's the source of life. Come all you weary of the lost and found and drink from the fountain where life is found. Sing, he's been good. He's been good, so good to me. Even in my sorrows and my suffering, oh, He draws me close when I am wandering. He's been so good to me. And a sweet can have a seat. Thanks so much for joining us in worship. My name is Ryan Burton. I'm a worship leader here at Fellowship Fayetteville. I wanted to take a second and kind of shed some light on our worship ministry and some of the cool things that are going on that I get to be a part of with a team of other worship leaders. And so um, one thing 
that is pretty apparent if you look around and see the space. We go to a very large church, and there's um, a lot of benefits to that, a lot of ways that we can um, reach a lot of people through the size and the resources of the church. Uh, But there's also some challenges to that um, in the context of ministry. One of those challenges for the worship team, the worship um, ministry, is that we actually have, and this is crazy, and it's an awesome blessing, we have 80 unique individuals that serve as musicians and vocalists um, here just at Fellowship Fayetteville. Um, And man, we praise God for that. That's awesome. Um, that's, That's across Fayette Kids, FSM, college, women's ministry, and then on this stage as well. Um, But the challenge there is that as worship leaders, we really want to get time with each of those individuals as often as we can. And I am not able to do that, and Dave is not able to do that. Um, We're not able to do that as individuals. And so what we've done is we've implemented a system of team shepherds. And so at each instrument, we have a team shepherd, and they serve in so many different ways um, through playing um, their instrument and serving in worship um, a couple times a month, but also in getting time with these volunteers and being able to sit across the table from them and to check in on them and see how they're doing. And so I wanted to take a second um, just to introduce those team shepherds. We actually have all of them on stage this morning. And so we've got Greg Hoffman over here. He's our electric guitar team shepherd. We have Alex Walker, our bass guitar team shepherd. John Rhodes on drums is our team shepherd. And Brian Meadows is our keys team shepherd. And if you guys would, just give them a round of applause. They, they give so much of their time in serving. And on top of that, they're awesome musicians. And so we're blessed to have them. But I just wanted to take a second to brag on them and to say I'm so Very thankful for you guys. Um, It's volunteers like you and and Fayette Kids and FSM and community teams that allow Fellowship Fayetteville to to do the ministry that God has called us to do. And so thank you guys for giving your time, um, for using your talents and your giftings to serve an almighty God. We're thankful for you all. And so let's, let's stand together Let's continue to worship this morning.
lot of different songs in the context of Sunday mornings, and maybe my favorite song right now, uh, my favorite song to lead, my favorite song to sing in worship is a song called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And we're about to sing that song, but I think, I think a lot of times with these songs, they're so rich lyrically in theology um, that we just pass over them when we sing them a lot. And I don't want us to do that. I want us to slow down and I want us to, to meditate, to think on these lyrics because they're powerful. And with this song in particular, I, I, could, I wanna dissect every single line in it. We don't have time, but I want us to look at the last verse. It says this, it says, what a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope that Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. And as Jesus followers, this is our hope, that Christ has been resurrected and our hope is in that we will be as well when he comes again. It's just a foretaste of the deliverance, Christ's resurrection, the deliverance for us. And so as we sing this song together, listen to these words that you sing, they're powerful and they're true. They should stir our affections for the Lord because he is great and he's worthy of all the praise that we give him. And so let's sing together. So 
Disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who formerly asked him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Please be seated. My name's Tad. I get to serve here on staff with the student ministry, and it's, it's a real uh, joy to get to be in here this morning with y'all uh, and hear this room singing praises. Thank you to the worship band for leading us this morning and helping us uh, see Jesus clearly and worship him. Uh, we're in our series on John, and we're gonna continue in, in a miracles, uh, thinking through that story that Andrew just read for us about where Jesus healed a man who was born blind from birth. Uh, and as we get started with that, just kind of as I've been thinking through this, it brought up this question for me. Have you ever felt aimless? Have you ever maybe felt like you've missed a direction or have gotten lost uh, in life? And a funny example, a time when I literally felt like I'd taken a wrong turn and felt a little bit aimless. Uh, this past spring break, I got to help lead a group of students out to Denver, where we partnered with a church planting organization called Calvary, who exists to make Jesus non-ignorable uh, in Denver and the ends of the earth. Like, what, a, what a cool mission statement for a church. Uh, and they taught us a lot about how they were creatively trying to reach their city. But the story I wanna tell you is whenever we came back home, uh, we'd gotten really excited, it'd been a long week, we were ready to get home, see our families, so we left really early in the morning. We had a goal, let's leave by 4 a.m. And so we load up the 15 passenger vans, we get everybody out uh, in the car and we're ready to go, and I didn't make it out of the parking lot before I made a mistake. See, we, we had lined up in the vans and Kyle, who's driving the van in front of me, he turns right out of the parking lot, but my maps is telling me to turn left. And so I'm thinking, maybe Kyle just needed to go get gas. So I hang a left, and I think, I know which way the highway is. We've been here a whole week. I'm very familiar with Denver now. And so I go left, and in my rear view, I see Amy, who's in the van behind me. She also went right. And naturally, I just thought, I guess Amy needed gas too. So I just kept going. And I'm trusting in my maps, my understanding of where Denver was at and how to get back home. We get like an hour out. 
and we still haven't hit the interstate. We're well outside of Denver at this point, and I'm thinking, where are we? But I just kept it to myself. <laughs> I kept driving. I'm like, I got my maps. It's telling me how to get home, but it's dark. I'm in an unfamiliar place. We're on some like backcountry highway, nothing like the interstate with a miles per hour max of like 50. We're going really slow, and finally, I look at Parker, who's in the passenger seat. I'm like, hey, will you check your maps and see, are we going the right way? Like, is this right? And we had totally taken a wrong turn. But in my mind, I knew which way we were going. And it took me a while to realize, hey, my misstep, my misplaced confidence and my understanding uh, got us lost. And we fell hours behind the rest of the group, far delaying getting home. But it made me think of just in life, oftentimes when we feel, feel aimless. Maybe you've taken a wrong turn in life. Maybe you feel aimless in a relationship, or maybe in a career choice. Maybe you're walking through some difficult circumstances and you just think, God, if I could just see you, I feel lost in this and I don't know what to do. I think all of us have reached a point in life where we feel like either because of decisions we've made or circumstances around us that we just can't see God clearly. We feel aimless and lost. And we're gonna think about this story today, but, but with that in mind, that idea of feeling aimless or feeling lost, I think it's cool to notice the context when this story happens and what Jesus is trying to communicate about himself. Uh, because this miracle took place at the end of a feast of the Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles, when as an entire people group, they would remember a time in their history when they were aimless, when they were wandering. Uh, they would remember the stories of, of Israel after they had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, led by the prophet Moses, and they make it out into the wilderness, they cross the Red Sea, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. I bet they felt very aimless at times. And yet, they would reflect during this feast, during this festival or holiday, that even though they were wandering and they felt aimless, that God showed up in miraculous ways. And they would experience, they experienced this provision that he provided for them in their wanderings, and they experienced this presence that he showed up for them, that whenever they were wandering at night, he would show up in this great pillar of fire and light and lead them through the darkness. That he instructed them how to build the tabernacle, hence the name of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, this elaborate tent that was designed to reflect imagery from Eden, this sacred space where God would come and meet with his people, and they knew that his presence was in their midst because great fire and light came down and filled the tabernacle. And they knew that he was with them and so they would remember this every year. They would travel to Jerusalem and they would reflect on their ancestors wandering in the desert. They would sleep in tents to remember what it was like for them and they would reflect on God's provision and his presence and they would remember how he was their light. They would light these extravagant candelabras up in the temple that would fill the night sky and they would remember God's presence was with us and they would long for a greater sense of his presence again. It was both backward looking and reflecting God has been with us but they're longing, we want to know that God's presence is with us again. And it's in the midst of all of that and that longing, that reflecting on and feeling aimless, that Jesus stands up at this feast and he begins to take the symbols from it and reorient them around himself saying, you want the water, like the answers you had in the desert, you want the water? God, I have the living water, come to me. You want God's light in your presence to know that he's with you? I am the light. I've come to you, I'm here and yet this caused a lot of controversy, a lot of division amongst the people. Some people saying, maybe he is. He's been doing these miracles. Others saying, no, there's no way that this man could be the Messiah. No way that this could be uh, God come to meet with us. And this fighting back and forth uh, so much that the, the spiritual leaders, they're debating, they're refusing to believe in him, failing to see him as their Messiah. And they begin to accuse him saying, you might, you're demon possessed. We don't even know if you're even Jewish. You, you're, you're a Samaritan. We can't trust you. We're Abraham's offspring. We know better and then he gives the big like Mac Daddy I am statement saying, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming to be Yahweh in their midst, come to meet with them, to rescue his people, but they can't see it. And they, they actually, when he says this, they pick up rocks and they intend to stone him and kill him. They're so, uh, so refusing to see him and so uh, can't believe that they wanna kill him. And it says that Jesus, at the end of chapter eight in John, that he leaves, he, he went out from there and I don't know if they're still on his tail, if he's got like a mob behind him looking to kill him, but he is leaving this place because he's been rejected by the very people he's come to, to save. And even though he's tried to reveal himself to them, they're failing to see it. 
But something stops him in his tracks, and I find this really interesting. If you have a Bible or a device where you can pull up John chapter nine, I would love for you to see this chapter with me this morning. We're gonna read through chunks of it, but notice the first verse of this chapter. As he's leaving, and remember the context, he's got people on his tail that want to kill him. It says, though, that as he went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth, and he stops. And I'm really struck by that that in the midst of this context, that he's been uh, refused and rejected by the people he's come to save, potentially has a mob on his heels ready to kill him, but something halts him, something stops him in his tracks, and it's compassion for this man who's been born blind, who can't see. And isn't that like Jesus? If you've seen about the Gospels, that Jesus is moved by compassion for those in need, for the hurting and the broken, and he stops as we read a while ago, he, he, he sees him and he desires to heal him. And he makes a mud out of his spit and dirt and rubs it on the man's eyes like an ointment or salve and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man comes back seeing this miraculous uh, gift that he gives him of sight to a man who has been born blind and has never seen the, the vibrancy and the color of the world and now can see for the first time because Jesus had compassion for him. I think that's amazing. But if you've been following in our series on miracles, you know that oftentimes when Jesus would do a miracle, he was, yes, performing this powerful sign, but he was usually trying to communicate something about his identity to the people, trying to communicate who he was so that they could see him more clearly. And he definitely does that in this, but what we're gonna see throughout the rest of this chapter, which is interesting to me, is that yes, he reveals something about himself, but this miracle also reveals something about the people around him. I think it even reveals something about us that he wants us to see, that there was more than one blind man in this story. And by the end of this chapter, we'll see that he's making claim that all of the spiritual leaders, all the people who have been refusing to see him, they have a spiritual blindness. They can't see him, but he wants to open their eyes. And I wanna ask that question this morning as we look through this chapter. What blinds us to Jesus? What causes us to fail to see him for who he is, to not get to experience the relationship with him that he desires us to have because we can't see, so we've got blinders on? Let's move through this chapter and, and ask that question. And I wanna, before we do, before we dive into this chapter, I'd like to pray for us and just ask, God, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see you more clearly and would you convict us by this? I, I'll tell you right, right out, I've been so convicted by this chapter and seeing my own spiritual blindness and where I need to open my eyes to Jesus and ask him to open my eyes to see him more clearly. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, the Gospel of John, just the amazing things you've taught us as we've studied it as a church. Would you open our eyes to see you more clearly as we look at John chapter nine and we consider this amazing miracle where you gave sight to someone? Would you convict us in our own lives where we have blindness to you? Would we come to you humbly and ask you to open our eyes as well? We know that you're with us and we trust you. We thank you for being with us and for your word. Amen. I think the first group that we see, let's talk about the disciples, because we read through uh, that first bit, and, and that's what launches this whole thing, is something that disciples have that actually is kind of a blind spot of their own, that they've got a poor theology. They've got a misunderstanding about the way that God is. Look with me in this first part of this uh, chapter. They ask him. They see this blind man as well, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, whose fault is it? They fail to see this person, one. They're blind to this person who's in need of help, that Jesus' first reaction is to show compassion and mercy towards, but they see him as a theological debate. Like, whose fault is it? Why is he the way that he is? Is it his fault? Is it his parents' fault? It's likely that they're taking an idea from the Old Testament that I'll be honest is confusing to me too, but to look at it and consider what Jesus reveals is this. They're likely taking that passage, most notably from Exodus chapter 34, that says this. When the Lord came down and met with Moses, when they're out in the wilderness in the midst of their wandering and Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, God passes in front of Moses and says his name to him. This is God's introduction. This is my identity. This is who I am. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sins of parents to the third and fourth generation. I love the first part of that verse, right? I like that. Can we just take out that last bit about punishing people? That's confusing. And I think that that's what the disciples are feeling too. What's God trying to say here? Uh, Well, I think he's trying to remind the people of the covenant that he's made with the people of Israel, that he told Abraham, I'm gonna turn you into a great nation and bring blessing about to the world through you. And God upholds his side of the covenant, but he's giving them a warning in this. I take sin seriously. And even if your children, if generations later, they fail to keep the covenant, they fail to maintain faithfulness to Yahweh and they're part of the covenant that God had called them into, that there will be consequences. And what the disciples maybe have right in asking this question is this, that sin has consequences that go beyond just us as an individual. I think that's a good reminder for us. We live in a very individualistic culture and we we say things often like, just worry about yourself. It doesn't hurt anybody else but me, so it's okay. But sin affects those around us. And it, it often has implications for our family for generations. And the things that we compromise on as a generation often are passed on to the next generation. And consequences can linger for years and years. Maybe you feel that in your own family, dealing with some sort of generational impact of a sin of someone, a parent or sibling. But what they get wrong is this, that they take that idea and they try to assign blame everywhere. They get this compulsion to, to try to see any sort of injustice or wrong thing in the world and say, well, it must be someone's fault. And I wanna assign blame somewhere. I think we're very guilty of doing the same thing often. I know that I am. You see something go wrong and you're like, well, did I do something wrong or did somebody else do something wrong? And it makes us feel better if we can assign blame somewhere. I think that comes out of fear that maybe that we think, well, if I don't do the things that they did, then bad things won't happen to me. Or it makes us feel better if we can understand whenever there's just chaotic wrong things in the world around us. That if we could blame someone, we could understand it better. Maybe that's what's blinding the disciples to Jesus. But notice how he acts. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That he sees this man not as a theological problem, but also as a son of God, one of his human beings, someone with dignity, God-given dignity as his image bearer, that the glory of God can be displayed through his story as well. And he heals him. He shows him dignity. And I think that that points out to us this, that, that when we don't understand the things around us in the world and we often try to make sense of it by what we think we know about God and we, we think of God as this capricious God who wants to dole out judgment for every wrong thing we do, we fail to see the bigger part of that passage. Like I said, I like the first part. And yes, God takes sin very seriously, but notice, it says the consequences of sin can last to the third and fourth generation But look how far God's love goes. The thousands and thousands and thousands, his compassion. He's slow to anger, he's merciful. He's so much faster to show forgiveness than he is judgment. His disposition is to show love and compassion and mercy. That's who he is. The very fact that Jesus is here in this moment after generations of Israel failing to keep their side of the covenant with him, that he still has come to uphold his side of the covenant. He's a faithful God, is proof of that. There's more I'd love to say on that because there's so many questions that that still brings up for me. And maybe it does for you too. And so I would encourage you, maybe listen to the Sermon Notes podcast. We talked about it a little bit more. And if you'd like a resource, more on just understanding this, there's a great article by The Bible Project. If you just, if you're taking notes, write down, uh, if you just Google Bible Project, The Sins of Our Fathers, a great article just to help us understand a little more of what's going on here. But the point I wanna see today is this. I think the disciples were blinded by something that they fail to see that God is a God of compassion and mercy, and I think Jesus reveals that. And that we can often blind ourselves to God when we go around trying to judge others and assign blame for the wrong things in the world, rather than turning to God and asking for his mercy and compassion and seeking his healing. What else can blind us to Jesus? Let's look at the next group of people, starting in verse chapter eight, or, or verse chapter eight, verse eight, here we go. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? But some said, it is he. Others said, no, he just looks like him. But he kept saying, I am the man, it's me. And so they said to him, okay, well then how were your eyes opened? 
He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I went and washed and received my sight. And then they said, okay, well then where is he? Where's this man called Jesus that healed you? And he says, I don't know. At this point, he still hasn't seen Jesus with his own eyes. He's only heard his voice. What I think blinded the neighbors to Jesus is this, this attitude of cynicism, belief that life change can't happen, that, that God can't change situations. And oftentimes we feel that too. Maybe we get stuck in the cynical outlook of life, or the cynical outlook on life that people can't change. My situation will never get better. And maybe that comes from a real place for you. Maybe that comes from a place of hurt or abandonment or abuse. And you just get that posture of, well, if bad things just happen all the time, well, if I just expect the worst, then I'll never be disappointed. It comes from fear and pain, and we try to protect ourselves by having this outlook on life that we know how things go. We get cynical. And cynicism's different than skepticism. I think it's okay to come to God with our doubts and questions, but when we convince ourselves that we know, we know that things can't change, we know that God can't change the situation, that cynical outlook on life and an attempt to, to save ourselves, to have this callousness so that we don't get hurt, we blind ourselves to being able to see that God does change people, that God can change situations, that he cares and he wants to step in. And if we are cynical and we believe that people can't change, well, then well, we believe that Jesus can change people. And that's not a, like a be naive and just if someone says, I met Jesus, I'm better now, trust me. That's not to be naive. Maybe if it is a situation where you've been hurt, there does need to be a boundary there. But to really believe and to rejoice that yes, God can change the worst of sinners. That he can take the worst of us and radically change our lives. And we blind ourselves to him when we have a cynical outlook on life. The next group would be the, the religious leaders. They were blinded by their stubborn religion. If you'll pick up with me in, chat, or in verse 13, keep doing that. They brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, and now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how did he receive his sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. But the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How can a sinner do such signs? So there was division among them. So he said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? He's the one that opened your eyes. And the man says, I don't, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he is from God if he could do these things. We're gonna skip this interaction with the parents and jump, pick back up with the Pharisees. We'll come back to the parents next. But a second time, they call the man back. And they said, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. They're like, tell the truth, man. Like, this didn't happen to you. They're failing to believe his story. They're failing to see him as a person who's been healed. They just want his story as it serves their own agenda. He said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man says, I already told you, and you won't listen. Do you wanna hear it again because you wanna become his disciples? It kind of challenges them a little bit. Why are you guys so caught up about this? And they respond, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, that's amazing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? But well, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. And look how they begin to name call him. You were born in utter sin. You sinner, you would teach us. We know more than you. And they cast him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him from the people. They're stubborn. And their religious system is blinding them to God. It's said that Jesus did this on a Sabbath. Let's make some sense of that. Why was this such a big deal for the Pharisees? That they wanted to keep the Sabbath. They had good reason, I think, to care about the Sabbath. Uh, God had given his people the Sabbath day as a reminder that he was sovereign. He was in control. He cared for them. He would provide for them. To take that day off at the end of the week to rest in his goodness and not do any work, believing that he would continue to provide. Which, after a long productive week might be great. You'd be like, yeah, I'd love a day off. But what about whenever they'd maybe had a week where it rained a lot and they got behind on their harvest and they thought, we've got this beautiful Saturday, great weather, what if we could work on it? God would say, no, 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 trust me. I'm still gonna provide for you. It would create an anxiety maybe for them to believe that God would provide and yet he gave them the Sabbath as a reminder. Look how I'll continue to provide for you. 
But the Pharisees knew in their history that their people had gone into exile, partially because they failed to keep the Sabbath. They failed to trust in God's provision for them. And so now, after their exile, they're back in the land. They're scared. Right, what if we mess that up again and we get exiled from the land again because we fail to keep the Sabbath? And so they start instituting all of these rules beyond God's rule. They set up all of these um, rules on the people beyond what God had prescribed in order to stop them from getting even close to breaking the Sabbath. For example, uh, somebody could maybe pick up a chair in their own home and carry it to a different room. That didn't break Sabbath working rules. That wasn't considered work. But what if you dragged it? Well, if they dragged a stool, well, maybe that would... That could maybe dig a line in the dirt and the ground, and that's a little bit too close to plowing, and so don't do that. You see just like the ridiculousness of that, the fear that's causing them to set all of these rules in place on the people and impose them on them. I remember that story I told you of when we're coming back from Denver, and we get lost in the, in the early morning, and it's dark, and we're trying to figure out where to go. We finally get out to the end of the road, and we see the interstate in front of us, and then we breathe, breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, we can pick up the speed and head back home. But again, our Maps app was telling us, hey, go left, turn west. And I'm smart enough to know at this point the sun's starting to come up and I know that every single day the sun is our reminder which way east is and I've also seen a map and I know that Arkansas is east of Colorado. So I'm like, I don't know, Parker, I think we should turn right. I think we should go east. You know the way that home is? We should turn towards the light. It's kind of funny, the metaphor of it. But guess what I did? You think that I trusted my natural instinct of which direction the sun was clearly pointing out to us? No, we turned left. We followed the maps again. We start going back to Denver, going in circles. We're like, what is going on with this stupid maps app? We finally do some digging. We figure out that there had been a setting that we were unaware of that somehow had gotten turned on, an extra rule that our maps was following that said avoid toll roads. And so it was sending us on this wild goose chase trying to find any route back home that would avoid tolls and sending us in circles, this extra rule that went beyond our desire to get home. And it was leading us in circles and that's what was happening with the Pharisees. They're, they're imposing these rules on the people. They're caught up in this, this war. They're, they're out of fear that they could lose their nation again. They engage in this, this imposing these rules and they get so caught up in their culture war uh, that they lose sight of people. And they were demeaning this man. Notice the name calling. It wasn't doing religion the way that they thought was best. Worse, they got so caught up in their version of religion that the very God they desired to see became totally unrecognizable to them. And they couldn't see him when he was right in front of them. Are we blinded at times by stubborn religion? We think our way is best. and We fail to actually look at what God has said and who he is in his word. Lastly, let's look at the parents. Come back up to verse 18 with me. The Pharisees didn't believe that the man had even been born blind, so they call his parents and they ask him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And the parents answered, we know this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He's of age. He can answer. He can speak for himself. We get this little parentheses where John lets us in on what's going on. So the parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone would confess Christ, Jesus as Christ, they were to be thrown out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I think this one probably makes me the saddest of the four. That these parents were so worried about their status and their acceptance in the community that they would be seen well of, that they abandoned their son they say, don't say that it was Jesus who saved you. Don't claim Jesus. Just, just, just be quiet about that. We don't want to go there with you. They care more about their image and their status than they cared about their son's relationship with God. And it's just a convicting thought. Do we care more about our status than we care about our children's well-being spiritually? Do we value our Children's status or their popularity or their acceptance or the way that people view them more than we care about them having a deep, healthy, vibrant relationship with Jesus, even if it costs them rejection from others. We just want them to be well-liked, so we'll go to the church things so they will stay out of trouble and be viewed as good kids, or do we actually want them to love Jesus 
and follow him wherever he might lead them, even if it meant risking reputation. What all of these have in common, being blind to Jesus because of wrong theology or a cynical outlook on life, stubborn religious practice or seeking status, what they all seem to have in common is this, that they're all rooted in fear. And even many of them said that they were afraid and that's why they acted the way they did. But the way that they tried to balance their fear was this posture of pride. I've got this figured out. I can't admit that I'm afraid. I have to figure this out on my own. Whether that's by thinking I know better things about God than others, or whether it's knowing I know how life works better than others and having a cynical attitude, or maybe having this stubborn religious, people need to do things my way and my understanding, agree with me and my ideologies or my status. If I can just look good enough for the people around me and be accepted, then I won't have to be so afraid. But we begin to spiral in that because we can never keep up the image. We can never keep up our pride. But we spiral out of control whenever, out of fear, we respond in pride and we blind ourselves to God. We gouge our own eyes out from being able to see Jesus when we live in that cycle of fear and, and pride. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate through this entire miracle to the people. Notice at the very end, he says, for judgment I've come into the world, that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The Pharisees who were with him heard him say that and they said, what, are you saying we're blind too? And he says this, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It almost sounds like a riddle, so let's work that out. If you would admit that you're blind, that you fail to see, I would heal you. But you're spiritually blind and you won't even admit it. And I can't do anything for you. When you have that posture of pride, when you don't even think there is a problem, I can't open your eyes if you won't come to me and admit that they're closed. I think uh, the, the theologian Charles Spurgeon said it well in this quote. He said, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. Not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. Not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to the people here is this, that you won't see me unless you admit that you're blind. You can't receive the gift of healing I bring you if you don't admit that you're sick. I wanna help you and give you spiritual strength, but I can't unless you admit that you're weak of your own strength, that you can't do it, and that will require humility for us to admit I'm afraid or I've got a cynical outlook on life, I've been hurt, I don't have it figured out, I'm at the end of my rope, I don't know what I'm doing. It's hard to admit that to ourselves, to others, to God. We think that we have it figured out on our own strength, but we, we blind ourselves to God when we have that kind of outlook, when we try to live in pride. We gotta remind ourselves that that's how our, if you're a believer in the room, that's how our whole journey with Jesus started. When you had a humble admission, I can't do this without you. I need you, Jesus. Would you change my life? I can't do it on my own. I need you. I'm stuck. Would you save me? And if it started that way, it would naturally follow that to continue to have a clear sight of Jesus in our life would be that we would maintain that posture of humility before him, that we would recognize that he is our source of strength, that our source of sight, our source of everything. We need him. We can't do it on our own. Humiliating, though, to admit it, to admit that we need help. And I've been so convicted by this chapter because it's revealed a lot of my own spiritual blindness. And I don't know if maybe it was just one or all four of them for you, but for me, I can see a sign of all of them that I, I get stuck with wrong theology sometimes thinking that God is out to get me or he's constantly testing my faith because he's this capricious God who, who wants to prove himself. And if I get too caught up in life or too thankful for things, he'll just take it away from me to test my faith. And I shared that with my wife the other night. I'm just, I think that about God sometimes. When bad things keep happening, it's easy for my theology to get out of line and to think that that's how God operates rather than trusting in his word and the way he's revealed himself to be a beautiful, compassionate, merciful, caring God. I wanna pause and think. Everything I have is from him. So why would I think that he would be out to get me? Uh, some events in, in family and life over the last few years and all of us living through a pandemic probably made us all a little bit cynical, right? 
Why would we assume anything good could happen when it feels like the world is falling apart? I know that I, I've admitted to my community group over the last few weeks, I've gotten so cynical and I used to feel like such an optimistic person, but I've gotten where I just feel like I assume the worst. And it's made it hard to see Jesus. I've also gotten caught up in a lot of just the, the religious back and forth and, and the political back and forth in our culture and the name calling and, and just the, the, the polarization that can blind us to one another and blind us to God. And I've needed to repent of that. I too have cared too much about the way I'm viewed. I want to care too much about the way that others think about me or what I have or maintaining the status quo rather than just following Jesus and knowing him. It blinds me to him. I don't know about you, but, but I, I felt so convicted by this passage. Of just, God, I'm, I, I feel so blind. I don't feel like I see you as clearly as I ought to. But what's encouraged me from this passage, and I'd like to share with you is this, is this, that, that hopefully our eyes will be open to him that when we are blind to Jesus, that he's not blind to us. When we get stuck in a state of blindness to him, we can't see him, he still sees us. Notice in this passage, it's Jesus who sees the man first. Potentially with a mob on his tails after facing his own rejection, he could be frustrated and angry and just leave, but he's halted in his tracks by a man who's been born blind by his compassion for him. And I think his compassion for the blind man went far beyond just this one man, but all of the people that he had just been with who were suffering from spiritual blindness. And he longs to show compassion. He sees this man, I think, as an image of, of Israel that they've been blinded to their king who's come to save them. And he wants to open their eyes to him. He heals him. He opens his eyes. And then he finally pursues him. He comes and finds him. I was reminded about this in this story, a part of my own testimony that uh, when I was in college and I'd been trying to follow Jesus for years, I was helping out at a, at a student retreat uh, and I was with Matt and Carrie Archer who were leading that and, and was talking to them that night, sharing with them about just things I'd been involved in in college and, and what my life was like and, and Carrie paused and she said, Dad, I've loved seeing God's pursuit of you all these years. And it was like a light bulb went off for me because I thought, wait a minute, don't you love seeing the way that I've pursued God all these years? No, Dad, you're blind. God's been the one chasing after you. He's been the one pursuing you all this time. He's the one that's had a clear view of you all this time. And that began to just change my outlook on who God is. And I'm reminded of that by this story that even at the end, he heard that the man had been cast out from the synagogue and he finds him, he seeks him out, he pursues him. He says, do you believe in the son of man? And the man again, he still hasn't even seen him with his own eyes. He's only heard his voice. He says, who is he, sir? Tell me that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. We might be blind to God, but he's not blind to us. And he's a compassionate, merciful, good God who longs to open our eyes. My prayer is that he would open up our eyes as a church so we could see him more clearly and remove the mud from our eyes that we often pack in there that blind us to him. And then our reaction would be just like the man, I believe in you, Lord, and we would fall down and worship him. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship him now. Pause and consider him. The God that gives us sight, the God that sees us in our condition and longs to help us see him so that we can say like the man, I don't know much, but I know this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Pray with me and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you that you see us and you still love us and pursue us. We long to open our eyes to see you clearly and help the world around us see you as well. We worship together as a family of believers and those trying to find you in life. Would you help us to see you clearly? Amen. Stand together, let's respond and worship this morning.
there's no darkness. There's no darkness in your eyes. There's no question in your mind, oh God Almighty. God of mercy. There's no hiding from your face. There's no striving in your grace. God of mercy. God Almighty. Let there be light.
this morning. The band's going to get us started, and I want us to sing out as a congregation a cappella. I think there's something powerful when we hear the voices of the saints singing together in unison. And so let's sing this out. Sing Amazing Grace. Let's sweep this sound. Amazing Grace, how First verse again, Amazing Grace. Just like the blind man, Christ has given us sight into the light. And so church, as we leave this morning, my prayer is that we would leave and be light into the world. Let's reflect that light that we see in Christ. The prayer room's available through the doors on your right if you would like to pray with someone. We love you guys. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.